When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Judith Tannen from the New Books Network. Today, I am pleased to speak with Dr. Joan A. Friedman, a renowned twin expert. Dr. Joan A. Friedman, Ph.D., is a psychotherapist and the author of several books, Twins in Session, Case Histories in Treating Twinship Issues, Emotionally Healthy Twins, A New Philosophy, and The Same But Different, How Twins Can Live, love, and learn to be individuals. Today, we will be speaking with Joan regarding her most recent book, Twins in Session. Joan writes, why would a twin sacrifice her own needs to make sure her same-age sibling is always cared for? What would cause a twin to have panic attacks when he and his brother go away to separate colleges? Why do some twins find it so difficult to develop friendships and romantic relationships? The twin mystique and twins' own expectations of their relationship contribute to their difficulties. A therapist who understands the psychology of twins can articulate what's going on between the siblings. Clients will feel validated as well as relieved to gain clarity about a defining aspect of their identity. Twins in Session shows therapists how important the twin connection is, what it means, why it's sometimes more important than the relationship to either parent, and why some twins don't know who they are apart from twinship. The book will help therapists become a trusted outsider who can give twin clients perspective about their twinship issues and assist them in developing healthy relationships. Joan adds that much of the literature about twins either focuses on extreme emotional and relational abnormalities or perpetuates the stereotype of perfect synchronicity between twins. Twins in Session shares the stories of real twins who sought help for common, real-life twinship problems. Our culture's idealization of twinship and twins' own expectations can contribute to their difficulties. Twins often are perceived as, and essentially function as, two halves of a single entity. Twins are conditioned from birth onward to expect effortless intimacy with their twin. 
so they often feel deeply distraught when problems arise between them. A twinship is a marriage that one does not choose, and twin pairs who have problems are very similar to couples in conflict. Therefore, twin therapy ideally helps twins recognize and accept each other as separate individuals with their own thoughts and feelings, communicate more honestly and effectively, and reestablish trust and stability. Joan is herself an identical twin, the mother of five, including fraternal twin sons, and has earned doctorates from two prestigious psychoanalytic training programs in Southern California. Joan, welcome to the podcast. Before we jump into the content of this book, is there anything you would like to add about your motivation for writing Twins in Context? I'm sorry, I cut you off. I want to thank you for having me and for showing such an interest in my work. Um, it's not everybody who's interested in twinship. It's really interesting when I, when someone asks me what I do, I say, oh, I work with twins that are having difficulties. And they went, twins don't have difficulties? What are you talking about? And actually, that's such so much of the motiv motivation that I have in terms of writing my books and learning about twin psychology, because there is this kind of stereotypic notion of twins being best friends and soulmates. And of course, it's understandable that non-twins idealize the twins. And so, so much of my own personal history goes into why I wrote these books. Um, first of all, growing up as a twin, no one kind of recognizes that you're developmental timeline is very different. You have certain struggles and issues and challenges that singletons don't have. And as you mature and develop, it affects a lot of other aspects of your life as you get older, your capacity to be separate, to make relationships, to get along with your twin in adulthood. So all of these issues impacted me, of course, myself and my own understanding of myself and my relationship with my sister. And so I'm passionate about educating others so that those who are parenting twins or those who are twins or married to twins can have a much fuller understanding and appreciation for what growing up as a twin can be can be like. And true, that is one of the reasons I chose your book, because I perceived the same exact stereotype. And before we jump into that, because there's so much here I really want to delve into, but I think it makes sense to just start with the literal, meaning the term twinship. And as many psychoanalysts know, the term was really picked up by Heinz Kermit in referencing the twinship self-object experience need, which he basically, uh, I'm using my own version, but, you know, being a person among people, uh, a best friend, that experience of we're alike, you know, I'm part of this with you. Your usage sounds like it's really different. Could you explore that or explain that? Yes. Well, when I first heard that twinship idea in the Cahushan philosophy, I really had a hard time taking it from my concrete experience to the theoretical. Um, I absolutely believe that what how you just explained it is correct. It's sort of like, you know, you're in a group and you're talking and people are nodding and you know, it's a shared sense that people are with you and understanding you and 
kind of going along with what you're saying and what you're thinking. But um, for me, the Cahushan psychology is a one-person model. And while it's wonderful in terms of talking about the idealizing piece and the, the, the mirroring piece, for me, my work is much more relational um, because I think twins end up being self-objects for each other because they don't have any other real parenting experience. And so because they have self-object functions for one another, they do often miss out on this other relational piece that's become, for me, a much healthier and um, wider understanding of how how connections work. That's interesting. It's actually the same thing, but not just for matter of the term, because you can't be a self-object experience for the other sibling, which we will talk about. Thank you. And Dana, we're not having this conversation. Um, so speaking of twinship in the sense of twins, not the self-object experience, I'm so curious about the MIPS, as I've confessed to you, I have the same exact one. And we know MIPS exists in our society. I mean, motherhood, the myth of motherhood, the myth of mothering. But, you know, what was that about? What, why do I and many others think, oh, twins, of course, I'd love to have a twin. What do you think that's about? Well, I think it's, again, as you say, it's so perpetuated in everything in our culture and in literature and movies and TV shows. It's, it's, it's this idea that you're never alone. It's the idea that you won't be abandoned. It's this idea you have this soulmate um, and a friend forever and someone who understands you without even having to speak. And, you know, uh, people go along in their lives and they struggle single, making friends, finding a connection, you know, finding a group. And here they look at these idyllic twins who have a group. They are a group on their own. And oftentimes, unfortunately, people tend to look at a twin group and feel like, oh, they're so lucky. They don't have to worry about making friends. They always have somebody with them. They're, they're, they don't have to go to places by themselves. And they, they see it as, you know, a beautiful example of just sort of fraternity, that you have somebody with you all the time who loves you, understands you, and will take care of you. Correct. But then I think of those horror movies. <laughs> yes. No, horror movies. I was looking up some more since we spoke. <laughs> and I was looking up this Betty Davis movie that was done, I think, in 1946 called A Stolen Life, where Betty Davis played, you know, both characters. And it, that movie and other movies um, are all about kind of an identity where where one person takes some one twin takes something from the other then one twin kills the other because that that twin stole what she wanted and she assumes her twin's identity and this is the same thing in a lot of movies and it's in dead ringers also which has been remade about three or four times and it's this idea that that twins can't exist that closely and find a way to 
have what each one of them wants. They Each one wants what the other one has. And you hear this all the time with parents who are raising, you know, young twins. Like the other one always wants what the other one has. And it's a kind of a mindset that unfortunately can perpetuate all throughout their lives. And so it creates, you can understand a lot of competition, a lot of jealousy, and the sense that they just don't feel like two separate people that can have different things. They both covet the same thing. And these horror movies really show, you know, the of course, a very exaggerated negative sense of what happens when they both want the same man or the same woman and they will kill the other to get what they want. Um, and that's a, a horror film. <laughs> right. Which also reflects that whole Edison idealization versus devaluation, but then the whole binary. It's either all wonderful or they're killing each other. And there's a lot of gray, I would imagine. Um, speaking of which, I, I'm doing it again in terms of myths, but we're going to talk about the parental object and the mother. And I hate blaming the mother because the mother always gets blamed. But And we're not blaming the mother. But in this case, this mother, this poor overwhelmed mother, is actually deprived of that dyad. She has two babies. And, and I, I noted on page five, you write this that being part of a group from the moment of birth, the twin doesn't come into one's own sense of self and subjectivity through differentiation from just the mother in the same way that single babies do. Mm-hmm. And and the ambivalence of that experience for, for the mother, for the, uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, of course. Um, it's If you think about the thankfully my twins were my last children and I had had the experience of parenting three singletons before I had the twins and I had imagined that I was prepared for motherhood by virtue of the fact that I was already an experienced mother and I thought oh god two more babies um you know two more years of no sleep or whatever but I completely just you know kind of just was focused on what the physical experience was going to be But then after I had my boys, I came to realize that the experience of connection was so incredibly different than it was with my three other children. And I had these two babies. Of course, I was crying in the delivery room. But anyway, I (laughs) after I got them home, um, you know, I I couldn't find a way to connect to each one of them, you know, it was easy. You know, you took them home. Fine. You you know, you were, I was breastfeeding them. I, I got, you know, that breastfeeding experience, if, if it's easy for you, and I'm not saying it's easy for everyone and not important for everyone. It should be a very individual decision. I have really strong feelings about that, um, especially if you have two babies. If you can't breastfeed your babies, so be it. But wow. The bonding experience for me with the breastfeeding, it's this sense of connection, a sense of feeling powerful, a sense of feeling in control. It, it's a it's a wonderful time to just have that one-on-one kind of um, interact interaction with the baby. 
Well, <clears throat> with two babies, I didn't, I, I didn't attempt to breastfeed. I think I did one for a little while, and then I thought the whole thing was ridiculous. So, and I, I guess because I had already done it, I didn't feel compelled to do it again. Um, but there was no sense of a connection with either one of these boys. You know, wow. John was sitting in his car seat like, and David had colic and he was screaming. And he's like, who are these children? I don't know. It was so incredibly sad and overwhelming. And I just feared, okay, what am I going to do? Because I was not myself like I was with the other ones. And so this whole experience that I had um, made me have so much empathy for first-time mothers. First of all, being a first-time mother of one was hard enough. Right. Uh, you know, I don't know if I'm very honest about <laughs> my different, my difficulties and my experience. You know, it was wonderful, but it was also so disruptive and, and, and difficult. So the adjustment for most moms and dads and families, not everybody can be tumultuous, but I think people aren't honest enough to talk about it, which is un- unfortunate. So I can't imagine you come home, you've never taken care of babies, you're anxious, you're exhausted, you're overwhelmed, and you have these two little needy infants to try to respond to. And it's hard enough with one, hard enough with two. And I think mothers in that situation just automatically from the get-go feel so torn and so overwhelmed about the connection. Are they connected with the one that came home from the hospital first? Because sometimes one stays in the NICU, one right. comes first. And I've read a lot of accounts which say that the one that came home first had a much better connection with the mom than Laura. Or maybe you like the one that sleeps more or the one that the one that looks like you or, you know, the one that seems to have a similar disposition. I mean, there's all these incredibly interesting characteristics that when you have one child definitely formulate and organize the attachment that a mother has because you you've had children I've had children you know that they're each individual and you make an individual connection to each one of them based on how it is you're feeling your history the sex the gender you know all that sort of stuff that we know so here you are trying to get to know two very different babies um, so many moms have told me that the first six months to a year is such a blur in terms of being so exhausted with all the caretaking tasks that they couldn't even figure out many of their emotional feelings about either baby because they were just so overwhelmed in terms of feeding and sleeping and so forth. So the connection is is incredibly difficult to, it just doesn't arise or, you know, evolve like it can do with one baby. You have to really work at figuring out how do I find a way to connect with each of these children? And that takes a, a targeted focus, a targeted devotion to the importance of it, and an enormous belief that there's something very important about doing that. I think I've gone on too much and I may not not, answer. not at all, because I have to tell you all these years later, 
I have a visceral reaction to your description of having a newborn. And I don't, I didn't have twins. And so, yes, 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 yes. I completely agree with you. And it, by not discussing this openly, we continue the myths, but that's another book. Um, and, and while you were describing the overwhelm, it, I had such empathy for the parent because how are you supposed to really buckle down and say, okay, you know, all this is going on and I have to be very aware of it and I have to be very conscious of what I'm doing and, and, and let me focus. And that's, it's, it's virtually impossible. I think, well, it is and it isn't. It, okay. It is, isn't if you recognize that this from the get go, that this is something you want to be able to accomplish, which is finding a way to connect individually with both children. So I give certain tips in my first book, Emotionally Healthy Twins, that, that I just learned from my own experience. And that is, if you can spend any kind of alone time with each one of them, that that is such a gift. I mean, again, if you don't have help or you have other children, you know, some a father told me the only alone time I can do is when I can walk with one twin to go to the mailbox. Uh, but just having that idea in mind is that as you're as they get older and things get a little easier, you can expand the importance of the one-on-one -on -one time in terms of the connection. You can read them a book separately, or you can take, you know, maybe one out for a walk while your partner's with the other one, or take one out for an errand, or take one out, you know, to go, you know, to the library. Anything, anytime you can find it within your schedule and in your psychological bandwidth to think about spending alone time with each one of them, it becomes easier and easier, not so much when they're infants, but it's a mindset that you inculcate in your family and in your schedule that this is what's really important. I was just reading on Facebook, some mother, a twins group just posted, oh my God, my twins are almost two and I never realized I've never been alone with either one of them. Wow. You know, and so I, I didn't write back a scathing reply. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I think, okay, yeah. And then the minute people do this, that the minute they kind of see what it's like to spend alone time with it, they love it. There's there's there is no fighting. They get to focus on the one child. The child the child loves this alone time. It's the biggest gift you can give a twin. So many adult twins have said to me, I never had any alone time with either my mother or my father. I mean, it's something that singletons just take for granted. Sure. But, but parents of twins, you know, you just take out one for hot chocolate. I mean, it's so simple. Um, it's a, such a simple thing to do, but a complicated kind of dynamic to understand why it's important to do. And if you if you wait too long to do it, like a lot of moms with toddlers, they tell me, oh, the other one cries. She's upset. Her sister's leaving. I, 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 I can't do this. My, it's, it's, it's making my heart hurt. And I try to say, it's the toddler way of protest. I mean, you can, you need to do it, no matter if I, it, right. 
so much about the toddler missing his or her twin. Right. It's a, a change in the routine sure. and a change in, you know, the dynamic. But but parents see this as resting one twin away from the other. It's like King Solomon, you have to cut the baby in half. Right. There's capacity to recognize the overall bigger picture of why the one-on-one -on -one time is so important because what it really is, it's a construction for connection. It's so interesting because I think it's also at times that pursuit of a sense of equality of, mm -hmm. I have to do this with A, I have to do this with B, which is impossible because they're not the same baby and it almost is easier to just kind of put them together and then i would imagine there's also that personality truth of you're drawn to one maybe over the other for different reasons so you have to sort out sort out that kind of a connection and and again it takes a lot of self-awareness it does i mean being and being able to be aware of your feelings and, and to kind of recognize that you have ambivalence about one maybe more than the other. You're absolutely right. That that requires a very complicated um, self-reflective capacity that, that not everybody is capable of doing or making. So you're absolutely right. The idea is if you feel guilty because one is having more than the other, I mean, this happens all the time. If one needs new shoes, and the other one doesn't need new shoes. Right. I'm only buy one pair of shoes for the child that needs it. Right. No, the other one's crying. She wants new shoes too. So I mean, in order to, you know, kind of defend against all the fighting about un life being unfair, which is, of course, every child. <laughs> yes, it's not fair. But with twins, it's not fair is exaggerated beyond right. me. And you have to be so strong. I just got an email from someone that I met at the conference we were talking about that has eight-year-old um, fraternal twin girls, one starting therapy for something, and her sister's jealous that she's not going to therapy. And it's not, they don't even know what therapy is. It's just that, like, why is she getting this and I'm not getting that? I mean, it's like hair ties, therapy, shoes, you know, it's everything it's like the yeah as what and the really awful terrible and and really pathological way that this can evolve is with twins that have eating disorders mm. because then it's like how much food have you eaten i'm going to eat that how much do you weigh i mean the the, the eating disorder is just the the more adolescent metaphor for this same issue, to keep everything the same, to keep equality between the two of us. And while it starts off, you know, like, okay, one's therapy and one's not, then it, this can really develop into a very, very severe pathology when, but it's the same, it's how it all starts. It starts off with, we're the same, we deserve the same, we are the same, we have to get the same, we have to keep everything the same, in order for our relationship to stay equalized and maintaining an equilibrium. And so, you know, what starts out as not being fair, you know, if it's not handled properly, can really mushroom into much bigger problems as the children get older. But 
So inequality is a big thing, and you're right, and the ambivalence is the big thing. Um, so I, I think it's interesting because I think for me, being an identical twin, that I that I and then having twins, is that I had no ambivalence about this because I loved the fact, and with all my kids, that I could find a sense of their individuality because I never had any of my own. Um. But most moms are not, so they're not so invested in this quest for individuality really from the get-go and not allowing their guilt or their unevenness or their ambivalence to get in the way as it, as it will, as it does. So I came from a very different perspective, but I have a lot of respect for people that are, are having difficult time with getting there. Of course. I'm taking that in, and, and the twin world really is so lucky to have you. No, really, that makes such a difference that it, it was a lived experience for you. And and to that point, because I remember talking to you about this, a lot of the book, you speak of this concept of other closeness. And I remember thinking when I was reading that, we'll talk about it, but I just to speak to you know the ignorance in my mind, and many others, I would imagine, is the, um, I had this view of, oh, you know, the lateral relationship with a sibling. And it, it that's so great. There's no edible component, you know, it's just the two of you. So they're equal, you know, there's just two siblings. And you kind of, and, and, and I was even saying, you know, Jonah, there's no hierarchy there. It's like, great, you know. Tell me how you reacted to that. I mean, tell me again how you reacted to that so our listeners understand. I don't remember exactly how I reacted to it, but I can react to it now. Um, <laughs> um, yes, that sense of having no hierarchy is very difficult um, in the sense that this this kind of this, this perpetuation and continuation of sameness becomes so emotionally stifling for so many twins. Um, as parents, as we talked about before, will keep on wanting the sameness and wanting the otherness because it makes their job easier because they don't have to deal with all the conflict that comes up. Growing up as a twin, you know, you really are, you're in each other's orbit pretty much all the time. In fact, I had a patient who was just working out, trying to find, she said, her own orbit. So you're in this same orbit with your twin and you're revolving around each other all the time and you miss out on so many things and you're so ill-prepared for so many things because you haven't been in the world on your own. So you haven't learned how to go into a classroom and meet other kids and socialize on your own. You probably haven't learned to study on your own. You probably never went to camp on your own. You know, you probably never had your own best friend because everyone assumes, unfortunately and erroneously, that twins are best friends and they don't want any kind of interference in their relationship. So twins often miss out on the whole idea of having a friend, making a friend. I, I hear this all the time. And when they do have a friend, it's usually a shared friend. So even that is shared. Even that is never a solitary experience for either one of them. 
So this this otherness really does perpetuate for many twins, not all, you know, a very, very unhealthy codependence because they don't have any other way to go. They don't have any other way to be in the world. And I, my own personal experience was, you know, my sister and I grew up this way. We were so sick of each other and we went to different colleges. But I didn't know in hindsight that I was going to have such a big trouble on my own in college. But I did because I, I was I didn't realize this until many years of, after my therapy, my analysis, that I I was so alone and so existentially um, vulnerable and so unable to h- have an identity or a, a solid core of a sense of esteem and any kind of agency to feel like I could go and make friends by myself. I just found this really depressed person to take care of. And that's what was my twinship role, as well as my role in the family. As most therapists, we're all caretakers. So I was repeating my caretaking function that I had done in my family. And, you know, as we know, it's it's fine to have a function, but a function doesn't give you a sense of self. And my sister, her, she got to college, she met her roommate, and the two of them are still best friends to this wow. day. <laughs> so she... She kind of found a replacement twin in a way, Aww. but but a, a wonderful one. And and I have to say, they're much closer than my sister and I are. Yeah. But, yeah. but I'm not. The we're not in this kind of you know twinship where you hear other twins say, "Oh, we talk every day. We're best friends." No, we have a sisterly. It's more like I guess a lateral, right? right. Um, but my sister and this and her friend. So it was very nice for her and very surprising for me to find myself in such a difficult situation, not knowing why. Of course. And and you wrote not about your sister, but you wrote about the concept. Who am I without the other? And, and I wrote this down because I love this. You say, unless you know yourself, you can't really know someone else, even your twin. And then Winnicott. Our, our hero Winnicott, a child looks into a mirror when he looks into his mother's eyes and sees himself as separate individuals. But when a twin looks at the eyes of her twin, she sees her twin, but not necessarily the eyes of a separate individual. And so, yeah, that inability to be an individual within the pair. And, you know, that, that, that's why when I, you know, you, you read that what, that twins are really couples in a conflict. Yeah. And when I, when I am trying to help twins who have come um, to see me together, usually one comes and not the other, but sometimes they do come as a couple. And it's fascinating because they have not differentiated into two separate people yet. So what what creates so much animosity between them and so much conflict is, is the fact that neither one has been able to embrace the fact that they're different. And the whole model of getting along and loving each other is on sameness and on being the same. So if one isn't the same or one has something more or less or they have different opinions about things, you know, we know that differing opinions these days is very difficult, but... 
in order to to you know have a separate opinion and yet to be able to stand back and see the perspective of another that is what gives us a capacity to work through conflict um but so many twins that their their relationship never evolved to the point that they're aware of their own self and aware of the differences all it does is that the, the differences create conflict and dissension and estrangement and you know they have to go kind of from enmeshment really to estrangement and they haven't been able to work through what's in between and it's very sad because they want to get along because their life has been getting along and then all of a sudden as they get older you know their jobs impinge upon them their relationships um the way their lives are different and they can't embrace each other in their different lives in different and and i'm wondering does that happen as well with fraternal versus identical to fraternal twins have that same dynamic they 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 do but i I don't think it's as um intense it's it's much more intense with identicals yeah journals have grown up with being pretty much different even even though they can look a lot alike they're usually again they're only sharing 50 percent of their genetic dna just like regular siblings usually they're not the same athletically or academically or you know personality wise so they they already grow up with and people usually know who they are because they don't look identical and people aren't getting confused right so they're they're known by others and by themselves in a different way. So there are particular challenges dealing with how different they are. How huh. being compared, like oh, no, get it? How come you can't, you know, kick the soccer ball? Or God, he's got an A in his science class and you have a C. Lovely. Aren't you twins? Aren't you supposed to be the same? Why that? This doesn't make any sense. Yeah. So, so that's that is really the parental. Um, kind of challenge with paternals is is the parents being able to be happy when one is successful and being able to be empathic for the one who is not. And this is such a difficult thing. I guess it, it speaks to the ambivalence we talked about. Mm-hmm. But if, if one's playing soccer and he's on the better soccer team and his team wins and his twin loses, you have to be able to celebrate the twins' victory, and you have to be able to be empathic with the twin who didn't win. Of and course. Parents are so bad at this. Coaches yeah. are so bad at this. Teachers are so bad at this. Sure. They can't live somehow with the fact that they can't treat each twin the same. And the adult twins who I've seen who talk about having this happen to them are so angry because their achievements were absolutely dismissed downplayed right. because of the twin you know not being as good as and it's so unfair that would not happen in a lateral relationship yeah so um, very difficult dynamic and also even though they're not identical they didn't have that dyad with the parent they still were you together right which speak, I want to go back, you mentioned enmeshment. And that's, you know, that's a word that is buried around a lot. And it's actually common. We hear enmeshment families, right? Like, it, sadly, 
it happens a lot. But what is the difference between, you know, mother-daughter, father-daughter, whatever enmeshment, and the twin enmeshment? Is there a difference? Is it the same thing? It's a very good point. Um, I never really think about it in terms of other people. I always think about it in terms of twins. But, I, you know, yes, I think it's very different because it's one thing to be maybe enmeshed with a parent. But but to be enmeshed with a twin who's basically in a parental role with you, right. um, that really is a very, very difficult and very um, complicated dynamic because you need that other twin to kind of effectively keep you in line. But you're also using that to keep the competition equal. So it's like, I, I, I treated these, these, these twins for a long time, these mesh twins, and they found me by themselves. They were miserable. They really had no, no parenting at all. They, they just, two parents were just overwhelmed and really couldn't just, they just were left to each other all the time. And they never made friends and they were always kind of good girls and perfectionistic and rigid and, you know, trying to kind of keep their grades in line. Then they believe and they hope they go to the same college, they live in the same room, and they basically never came out of their room because they were so socially um, anxious and ups uh, they never had really had any kind of social life except for one another. They made no friends in school growing up. Um, the parents had no friends really. And so they were just, they were like their own little world for most of their lives. And so, I mean, that's a, it's a very, very severe case of enmeshment, but I think it shows you kind of that when twins grow up in that world, that they, they only have each other. And then the idea of understanding that, where it came from, how they feel, and so the separating that I worked with with these lovely girls is that they began to see that they could, you know, have their own feelings and be their own person and that they could talk about how their feelings affected each other. Oh, I'm jealous of this or I'm 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 upset that you got this or I wish I had that. I mean, all the expression of all those feelings that had never been given the light of day because they they couldn't in any way be separate people because that was going to absolutely endanger how they stayed safe in the world. So I think twin enmeshment is, I don't know, it's very severe. Um, I don't know if, if it's uh, severe in other ways. I'm sure it is. But this is really like a double whammy in a sound. That's what it sounds like. Yeah, no pun intended. But um, it gets, and, and I was just thinking that even with, out the investment that factors into their communication skills and you mentioned this in the very beginning one and your own experience going to college there's not that good or bad there's not that interaction with the parent or the parental object it's each other but their kids there's no sense of teaching they're teaching each other but their kids um, do you know what i'm saying it, it feels like they rely on each other, but they're just struggling just like each other. There's no modeling, no authority figure, which is actually a necessary form, right? Right. I mean, it's it it affects also this the whole notion. Well, you know, some 
of these mesh twins, they go to school. So, uh, you know, they have some right, right. You know, action with other peers and stuff, even if they don't in some way interact because they feel too self-conscious or people think by that time they're, they're so freaky. You know, the other people, other kids are not interested in getting to know them because they do seem freaky because they, they just aren't like other kids. Um, and then they, and their social skills are so behind that, that they have to really catch up and it takes them a very long time to talk to other people, feel comfortable, know how to have a dialogue with other people because it's, that's, that's right. But what happens is, is that the enmeshment, as it gets better, they can start to have another sense of what intimacy is. Uh-huh. Uh, but intimacy, it's instead of being pathologically accommodating to each other and being codependent, what is intimacy? Intimacy, intimacy is the capacity to be a separate person and to have a place to um, hear what the other person is saying and thinking and then to be re- responsive or reactive which is a very, also a very hard thing to learn when you've grown up in a meshed model of attachment. And twins often feel like they want an instant, immediate sense of intimacy because that's what they're used to. Um, they don't want to have to explain what, what they're doing and why they're feeling because all they had to do is look at their sister or brother and that sister or brother knew what they were thinking, what they were needing, what they wanted, what they meant. You know, So it, it's a whole relearning process of what it's like to communicate feelings in an intimate situation with someone who's not your twin. Exactly. Because they never really learn. I mean, so many of us don't, but in particular, since they know each other so intimately through body language, through facial expression, through they don't develop the verbal ability and even the ability to understand Oh, this is how I'm feeling right now. Right, exactly. And I know a few a few people, a few cases I've treated where where someone lost their twin, like to usually to a relationship is how there are. And they are they go through an annihilating existential crisis. Yeah. They don't understand that they can't put into words. It's it's kind of like their twin world is gone, it's annihilated, and with that, they don't know who they are. And it's excruciatingly painful. And and until you're able to help someone understand what they're going through, they're almost incredulous because they don't understand because they've never been in anything other than that world. So it's, it's unbelievably intense. How do you even build the structure? That they never had. That's it. Well, how do we build structure as therapists? We know how we build right. right. We have to work and work and work, work and work. establish a relationship right. and understand. And, and I, you know, I, I do understand and I know what they're going through and they feel so much. Well, first, they're so enraged at being abandoned and being betrayed because they did live in a, a twin world where they were going to be with their twin forever. And all of a sudden, it's like their world has fallen apart and they need help understanding what happened, why they're feeling this way, why it's so difficult, 
and basically what they have to begin to learn how to do. It's really like you're, it's like ground zero. Exactly. I'm imagining myself as a patient, as a twin. And I'm really understanding now, Joan, even after having read the book, how that would feel for a patient to know that you truly do understand that twin experience. It's something that I, I will never, because I have not had it myself. And and I would imagine that they can even sense that and that furthers their growth. That's, well, thank you for that. Um, you know, I also want to ask you, speaking of which, your experience in that realm, you honor the twin authority. How does that feel? Did you ever imagine when you were trying to breastfeed your twin boys? Like, how did this come about? Did you go? No, I never imagined this trajectory of my <laughs> career. It's so strange. It's just that, as I said earlier, why am I not connected to these boys? And I just kind of became on a connection crusade about, oh my God, if I'm feeling this, other people might, must feel this. And I, I have a passionate urge and need of my own so that other twins don't go through all the neurotic mess and, and hardship and heartache that I went through. Because if you can if you can educate parents early on about how twins are different and what they need, I, my feeling was I was going to be doing some enormous service to people. And and that's what happened. And and then it just became also this whole thing, not of parenting, but also adults, that of course not all twins are happy. Why do people think like this? You know, twins are human beings and they have issues and problems and people don't know about it. And I thought, God, they, they need to know about this. It's not such an anomaly. It, you know, they should just explore and expand their horizons about what some of these emotional difficulties are. So I just got, as you can tell, very impassioned about wanting to send a message out about people really have to know what it's like, the positives and the negatives of being a twin, to not whitewash it like the parent trap um, and not think that mistaken identity is so funny and full of pranks and, you know, magical things you can do. But on a real life level, twins have enormous difficulties, especially trying to get married and having a relationship and dealing with their twins' betrayal and their twins' sense of abandonment and their twins' jealousy. And I have so many emails and letters from people. I, If I had known, I never would have married a twin. I never would have realized that I could gotten into this mess. Uh, not only is the twin a mess trying to deal with his or her loyalty issues, but the spouse or the, the partner, boy, yeah. So he's he's an interloper into this triad now, and he or she can't get what she needs or he needs because the twin is the you know ultimate competitor, and the poor other twin doesn't know how to organize and compartmentalize her relationship. So she's torn. It's. Oh very upsetting and I, I i would think that the majority of 
the people that communicate with me are dealing with that issue. Of course. I'm wondering what it's like when you, when therapists, like myself, when I listen to you speak, what, what is the reaction bit from other therapists when they encounter your that light bulb, at least for me? Well, they're all excited. You know, they're, <laughs> they're all like, God, I never thought about it. Right, thought, right. You wouldn't think about it unless you're a twin, unless you have twins. Of course you don't think about it. Why don't you? It, it, it doesn't, it's not entering into your, you know, your reality or your everyday life space. So I, I get it. I mean, why it's, it's like, it's a bad example, but it, you know, if you have a disease, you right. end up being with a lot of people with the same, of course. that kind of support and camaraderie, but otherwise you would never be involved with that. Hopefully not. So it's the same thing. It's entry into a twin world that. You know, you never had any reason or interest in being a part of. And also, you're you're helping to to get rid of the myths, for lack of a better word. I wanted to come up with a more sophisticated word if I get rid of it. I said it. You're clearly not doing enough. Saying, what are you planning for your future? I'm being facetious, obviously. I know you are. Um, well... It's so funny because um, I'm not certainly not sought after as a psychoanalytic speaker, but I am sought after as um, uh, someone who they they invite to speak to, uh, you know, when you have a twin festival or mothers of twins groups or like um, or even TV shows, if they need someone to help explicate some twin dynamics about something that's going on like next week. I'm going to Dominica, which is I never never heard of it, but it's they're having their first ever twin festival. Wow! I'm going to be one of the speakers. So my husband's always excited because the travel's tax deductible. <laughs> so I, I, I'm definitely sought after as a popular speaker, which is good because yeah. I tended to want to make my message very accessible, you know, not psychoanalytic jargon, um, trying to put it down on people's level where they can understand and take it in whatever they can take in and use whatever they can use, you know, in their everyday life. So, so I've sort of become more of, I think, a popular figure than anything else. <laughs> so are you on TikTok? <laughs> no. <laughs> I've drawn the line on that. I'm glad to hear that. And I, I pay somebody to do my Instagram because I can't figure that out either. Oh, um, well no. So, wow. And so here you are. And I'm, I'm willing to, to have spoken with you. And I know I've taken up so much of your time. I just want to add for the people listening that the book does involve all the different twin attachment styles, which I think you explore really well and, and highlight the types. And um, I just, we've covered ground, but is there anything that you feel is important to bring up that we haven't talked about? No, I think we've touched on a lot of things in a lot of different ways. And, um, I just like to thank you, Judith, who you are not a twin, but, you know, listening to me and are talking about this and getting to know each other. I really appreciate that you've taken the time and the interest to read my book and interview me and, and and bring the topic to awareness of, of 
therapists and people that aren't twins. And I really, I really thank you for that because it's a wonderful, again, another wonderful opportunity for me to try to get my message across. So I'm very grateful and I so appreciate you. So thank you. You're very welcome. It's been a pleasure. Be well. And I look forward to our next conference together or your next book, but that is totally up to you, obviously. Be well. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.